Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Ask Katie Anything. Um, to, today's actually been a good day. Do you know how like during all of this, I don't know, coronavirus chaos, it, it, some days I'm like, my brain just it just can't like I can't focus I can't do anything um and I just feel like a turd on a log is what I always say I don't know why that's the saying Does anybody else have weird sayings share those in the comments I would enjoy reading those um but yeah sometimes I just feel super unmotivated uh and just not productive and I know I've talked about this on my Katie Morton channel sorry I need a little drink of water about how how that is the reality that we're going to have days where we don't feel good and we don't, we can't focus. Um, even though I know there's a lot of like judgment online about like, if you haven't come out of this with a new skill, then you're not lacking time. You're lacking motivation. And I'm like, dude, this isn't a fucking vacation. Like this is a crisis. Um, it's hard. It's stressful. And so anyway, long story short, I, I finally feel like today's a good day. And I, I don't know. It was like a couple of days ago, maybe two or three days ago, where I was like, I feel like I rounded the corner. I don't know if any of you have been feeling this way, but the first like, I mean, what day is it? I'm like, this is, I'm recording this the Tuesday before this goes live. So in two days, you guys will hear this and see this. Um, but it's been a, over a month. It's been like five or six weeks now that Sean and I haven't really left our apartment like for much. Um, and at the beginning, it was really hard. Like that adaptation or the adjustment to it was just ugh, hard for me. And I would just want to sleep a lot. And I don't know, part of it, I think it's just like the stress response, but it also could be a little bit of anxiety and depression and just stuff. So I feel like a couple days ago, I rounded the corner and I'm feeling a little bit better, but who knows tomorrow I could be back, you know, feeling like crap. So don't think that you're, you know, I don't want you to compare how you're doing to how I'm doing. I'm just trying to hopefully share my experience and maybe validate some of what you've been feeling over the course of these two crazy, crazy months. Um, so I pulled off, uh, if any of you are wondering, or you're new, welcome. Um, I pulled the questions off of my Katie Morton YouTube channel community tab where uh, I'd asked you for questions last time because there were so many uh, good questions still in there and there's a ton of them. Um, but just so you know, for next week, I will I will post a new post and I think maybe I'll do it under this community tab. I'm not sure what's easiest for you guys, um, but I think that makes more sense when it's like all on the same channel. So on the opinions that don't matter, this podcast, chan post podcast channel. Wow. Wow. Maybe today's not as good of a day as I thought it was going to be. Um, but anyway, keeping it all on the podcast channel, I don't know. I just wanted to make sure I got tons of questions and everybody saw it. And I know this channel is just, it's just a baby. We're growing it. Um, anyway, 
So all I'm saying is make sure you have your notifications turned on so that you know when I'm asking for those questions, um, because I do, I do read through them, I do pull from them, and I want to hear from you. So yeah, so there's that. Okay, let's get into your questions, because that's what you're here for. Um, also today, random, random rant, random rant number one. Um, today's actually a really nice day. I hope it's warming up where you are too. I know that even for me, it kind of makes it harder to stay inside because I'm like, wow, it's such a nice day. I should get out. But then I'm like, no, the coronavirus, I should stay inside. Um, so it's almost more helpful for me when it's raining because I'm like, oh, I don't really feel bad about staying inside. Um, but either way, I feel like the sun makes my mood better. And if I just go out and let it hit my face for like 10, 15 minutes, that's good. Or sit in front of the window, let it hit my face. That's all good too. Um, so if you're craving that sunshine, know that you still can get it, even though we're isolating. Womp womp. Okay, let's get into those questions. Uh, question number one. Katie, how does a person regain confidence in themselves to do a certain job when employers think they're worthless? I really enjoyed this question. And I also enjoyed um, some of the conversation around it. There were a lot of replies where people were saying that their boss knew about their mental illness and didn't take it seriously or thought that they weren't as effective because of that or judgment and all sorts of shit. And I mean, not that this is like a f- answering the question, but there's always going to be assholes out there. There's always going to be bosses who are dicks who make everyone's life harder. There's always going to be people who are more judgmental or don't like anyone else to do uh, to do well. They only, they only want to do well themselves. You know, they're just all about them. Um, and I know that, that sucks. I've had bosses like that myself. Back in the day, one of my first jobs out of undergrad was at the worst place to work at. Like people would get hired and fired or quit like all the time. And that's one of the first signs of like a really bad unhealthy work environment. So if you are in an unhealthy work environment, I know right now it's really um, difficult because a lot of people are already out of work. So this might not be the time to like quit that job. But if you are in a position where you know that you can laterally move somewhere else, or you can just move into a different um, part of that business, so you have a different manager, those are all things you can ask for. Those are all things that you should advocate for yourself for, um, because no one should have to stay into a job that is emotionally abusive or abusive in any fashion. Um, And so this sounds kind of abusive. Just want to put that out there first. So when it comes to us regaining uh, confidence in ourselves, the, the truth is that we have to, just because this one employer thinks we're worthless or is just shit talking us or being a horrible human, that doesn't mean we have to believe it like hook, line and sinker. I think that it's important for us to look for evidence to support that we're good at a job. And I think that's kind of part of that positive self-talk because when we've been told that we're bad or worthless at something for so long, we tend to take those like outside perspectives or even just thoughts that we personally have and we accept them as fact when they're actually just thoughts or someone else's perception of a situation or someone's judgment or someone's self-hatred coming out towards us. And so that's why it's important that we don't just believe things as they are. We actually look for evidence. Um, And you guys know how much I love crime uh, shows and mystery shows. And so it's like you get to be a detective. You get to be like Olivia Benson or I don't know, um, Barnaby and Midsummer Murders, because I love that show too. Um, anyways, or you could be like uh, Jake Peralta in the Brooklyn Nine-Nine, another good detective. So be a detective for things that prove that you're good at the job and you are capable. And if it's hard for you to be like, I'm good because you've felt like you're worthless or whatever, we might, you have to use like some bridge statements or bridge evidence where it's like, hey, I have proof that I'm not terrible at this. doesn't mean I'm great, but I have proof I'm not terrible. 
And then we move from that. Like I have proof that I'm actually pretty decent. Like I did this and it worked out. It wasn't like amazing. Like there were a couple of things that I had to fix, but it was decent. Like if I was a teacher, I give myself like a C. Awesome. And so you're working your way towards it because regaining confidence um, takes time, especially if we believed it. Like it sounds like you believed with this employer, you took it to heart and it really hurt your own self-worth and confidence. And so we have to build up back from the inside. And then I would encourage you to leave that job if you can, or report that boss or employer if you have an HR department and you have the ability to do that anonymously. Remember always, you know, CYA, cover your ass first, make sure that it's all confidential. If you're a really, really small office, then there's probably no way that they can actually keep it confidential. They're going to know even if they don't know, you know, so just consider all of your options, but know that you always have the right to choose what you're allowing in your life. Like that's why I talk about boundaries so much is because boundaries are like the easiest way to describe boundaries is like in regard to property, right? Like this is my property line. Like my parents and I, we live on this property or Sean and I live in this apartment outside of that wall is, is outside my boundary, right? It's outside of the property. But when it comes to psychological boundaries, it's more about what we will allow someone to do to us with us and what we won't allow. And then it also stipulates what we will do as a result of them not abiding by it. So consider that when it comes to work and what you'll allow. Like if this employer is a piece of garbage and they're always talking down to you and maybe everybody else around them, a lot of times people who are just garbage people tend to just spew it to everyone. Then I would, you know, talk to your boss, find out when that boss is coming in or when you're going to have to interact with them. If you know their schedule, then maybe those are the days that you're like, oh, hey, I have a personal appointment. You know, you get out of there or you pop to the bathroom really quick. I think there are a lot of ways to like limit the amount of time you have to see them, limit the amount of interactions you have. Um, And this is if you can't like report them and you can't quit your job. Um, But really to back to the confidence, because maybe I feel like I'm getting off topic, which happens and I apologize. Um, But back on topic to that question, like regaining confidence is really looking for evidence, talking more kindly to ourselves and using those bridge statements if we have to. Um, And I'm sorry that you had to deal with that. God, having a bad boss. It's like, Sometimes, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but every once in a while, especially in being in the YouTube space, I'll come across YouTubers who've never had like a regular job. Like they legitimately started their YouTube channel, which is no, this is no hate. It's just like they started their YouTube channel when they were in school and then they got out of school and they just continued to do it because they were already making enough money to support themselves. And so they never had like a shitty boss and then they complain all the time about YouTube and they complain about um, having to create. and, And I'm like, dude, you have no idea. I used to have this boss that sat, so my desk, my little cubicle, my back faced her office and she would keep her door open. And periodically, if she would see me just like not typing or not moving, um, this was before like cell phones were so such a big thing, but I guarantee now she like, if she sees her person pick up the phone, she, she would like shout from her office. She'd be like, Katie, what are you doing? Like all the time. You got, it was horrible. It was like super stressful job and super anxiety provoking. And that's why people quit there because everybody's an asshole. Um, So anyways, find (laughs) off topic again, I apologize. Um, But, uh, you know, finding ways to think more positively, uh, if you're able to find a better boss, better job, if you can even laterally move throughout your company, um, I would look into doing that. If you're a large corporation, I would encourage you to go through HR and file a uh, complaint. And if other people in your office are are talking and complaining to you about the boss as well, 
I would encourage them to file a complaint as well. Um, you don't have to tell them that you're doing it, but I would just say, hey, you know, there's power in numbers. The more we complain, the more likely we are to get that person kicked out. And that's the truth. So take action where you can. I think often when we're in jobs, we feel like we don't have any, um, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, but like power for lack is like power in that situation. But we do, we have to take action where we can. There are certain things that are out of our control, but we do have some control. Um, so take that back. Okay. Good. I hope that that was thorough enough and I didn't get off topic too much for you guys. That's just how my brain has been lately. I think it's like, I don't know, the lack of focus maybe. Maybe it's it's my stress response. I'm not sure. Are you feeling that way too? Has it been hard for you? Let me know. Okay, question number two. Hey, Katie, I've been seeing my therapist for a little over a year now. I struggle with depression and my therapist said it may be time to see a psychiatrist. Definitely possible. At this point, I'm tired of feeling shitty, so I'll try anything. I'm so afraid of medication side effects, though. For example, weight gain is a common issue, but I have a body image issue already. And if I gain weight, these issues might worsen. Oh, my God. You're like, if I got a nickel every time someone said this to me about worrying about weight gain and antidepressants, oh, I'd be a rich lady. Um, if you don't know, I specialize in eating disorders and self-injury. Um, so my eating disorder patients always bring this up. What if I gain anything, any pound? They're like, oh my God. Um, which I understand eating disorders are horrible and they like invade all of our thoughts in our brain space. So totally get it. Um, but the thing about, uh, psychiatry and medication is, there's a shit ton of options. So you can talk to the psychiatrist. I would encourage all of you, if you're going to see someone or if you are considering taking medication, start writing down what symptoms bother you. If it's depression, it might be like, I feel lethargic. I don't enjoy anything. Um, I struggle to concentrate. Um, I don't know. I have a lot of negative self-talk. I have thoughts of death or suicide, whatever it is. Start writing those things down so that when you go to the psychiatrist, you're like, hey, dude or dudette, um, these are the symptoms that I'm feeling. This is what's going on with me. Um, I'm not really for medication. It's okay to tell them like, hey, I really worry about the side effects. Can you walk me through the side effect profiles of these medications? Like, Because they're going to say like, hey, I recommend you take an SSRI or SNRI, which is like an antidepressant or an atypical, which you know, people use to treat depression also, um, adjunctively with other things. So when they talk about those medications, you can say, Hey, um, what are the side effect profiles for them? And can I look at them and read about them before I make a decision and call you with my thoughts? Totally fair. Or can I see you next week? And we do a follow-up where I decide what medication I want to be on, or even if I want medication at all, remember it's your treatment and it's your, uh, your decision, it's your body. So make sure it's one that you're okay with. And that's why keeping your symptoms written down and bringing those in, talking that through with them, asking questions, write down the questions you're worried about, weight gain. Um, some of the most common side effects when it comes to antidepressants are things like nausea, dizziness, um, and, and weight gain is real, very common as well. Lack of sexual drive, like it can take your libido. So those are things that you might want to ask about. And also like once we've decided on one, we need to give it a fair trial run unless the side effects are like horribly, horribly difficult. You can't function with them. Like I've had patients who, because there are some scary side effects, very, very rare, but things you should talk to your doctor about, ask questions about all side effects. But I've had patients who like get on a drug and they have a headache that next day and they're like, I don't want to take it anymore. And I'm like, hey, we don't know if it's coming from that. 
call the doctor, ask your, your psychiatrist about it. And we, we want to give it if we can, if it's not like migraine level and, you know, maybe it'll go away. We need to figure that out. But if we need to give it like a good three, four, five, ideally, I like my patients to try a medication for two months before ruling it out. Um, and that's, again, not to say if it's side effects are terrible and uncomfortable and you can't live with them. I'm just saying if it's a minor side effect for like, oh, I just I feel a little uh, nauseous, but it kind of goes away by 10 a.m. or I don't know. There are things that we can live with because sometimes those side effects go away and so do our depression symptoms. So just ask the questions, talk to your psychiatrist and know that we're going to do the best we can. Uh, Side, there are a lot of side effects for different medications, but as long as we're informed, we make an informed decision, um, it'll be a good one. And I, I truly believe that body image issues and depression, like, yes, they roll together. However, if you don't have, if it lifts the depression, the body image issues will still be there, but it, it's not going to make your depression worse. It's something that you need to discuss. It might be a bigger issue. It might actually have nothing to do with the depression at all. It might be eating disorder driven. Those would be things that I'd be curious about. Um, But at the end of the day, I think if the depression is still getting, it's still bad. You've been seeing your therapist for a year. I think it's worth, I'm glad that you're open to seeing someone. I think it's worth looking into. It's worth asking questions Um, and then see what fits for you. But that's, it's important to track our symptoms. So when we start a medication, we can see how we do. We can see how we improve or what's going on. Um, and then we know if it's working because sometimes we forget. Like I can't tell you how many times my patients who've been on medications for, I don't know, let's say a year or something. And they're like, I don't think I need it anymore. I think I'm feeling super good. I haven't had any suicidal thoughts. And my depression is lifted, blah, blah, whatever it is. And I'll say, okay, cool. Talk to your psychiatrist. Don't stop it on your own. Have them titrate you down and let's see if your symptoms come back. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But we often forget what it was like before because now we feel so good. And that that's why medication exists. Um, anyway, again, I feel like I'm getting a little off topic, but for any of you out there who are considering medication, I see medication as uh, it's obviously very necessary for a lot of people. However, for some of us who maybe have been doing okay, and then we're in a, a deep pit where we just feel like, oh, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Um, it's like a life raft. It keeps us above water so that we can do the tools and the techniques and the things that our therapist is asking to us to do. We'll be able to do those so that we can get better. And then hopefully we can titrate off the medication later with, you know, consulting our doctor. But medication does not, for most of us, does not have to be a lifetime thing. It just allows us the breathing space to be able to work on ourselves. Does that make sense? Um, So don't think that, um, you know, by going in to see a psychiatrist, you have to accept the medication that they recommend, that you can't ask questions. Those, that's all false. We can ask questions we can say we don't want anything. We can say we need a week to think about it. Can we call in? Um, because oftentimes they'll let you call and you talk to one of their nurses or staff. They'll consult with the doctor and call in the prescription later if, if you did want something um, because they've already seen you, they've already assessed or whatever. So yeah, ask questions, tell them your concerns. A lot of medications don't have weight gain. Um, and so yeah, I think we'll be okay. One thing at a time, make, you know, Make your own decision based on your own symptoms and how you're doing. Um, And even, you know, talking with your therapist. But again, making those lists with the symptoms, with the questions is very, very important. I've been talking a lot today and I feel like my throat's going to be sore later from all the the jibba-jabbering. Okay. 
Okay, question number three. Now, this one's a good one, too. All your questions are always good, you guys, by the way. Um, how do I set up healthy boundaries during this time? Oh, my God, I've heard this question so many times in so many different ways. We're all struggling because we're stuck. It can feel very stuck. Like, oh, I have to be at home, maybe with uh, parents, friends, family, roommates, whomever that we just don't like or don't get along with, or we've just been together for too long. We need some goddamn space. I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, and so the best way, regardless of who you live with, whether this is a roommate, a parent, a sibling, a whatever, a friend, maybe some of you are like, you know, quarantining together with some friends. Boundaries have to be communicated. No one can read our minds. I know it sucks. It'd be helpful if someone could read our minds, but sometimes it's not good for people to read our minds because then we're like, I don't really want them to know I think that. So just remember, people can't read our minds. We can't have expectations with no communication because that just leads to resentment. So just pay attention to that. Remember that, okay? We can't have expectations without communication. That will just lead to resentment. Got it? So when it comes to healthy boundaries, the first thing that we need to do is figure out what we actually need that's reasonable. Because if we live in like a studio apartment with two other people, we're not going to be able to say like, hey, you can't come in this this part of the apartment because there's not many places to go. You can't be around me um, or walk in my space for you know three hours or something. That's not reasonable. We need to set some reasonable parameters like, hey, every day I'm going to go, um, I don't know into the bathroom. I'll check and make sure you both have gone pee or whatever before. I just need my alone time. I'm going to sit in there and read for for 30 minutes. Is that okay? I think most reasonable people will be like, yeah, sure. Just give me a heads up so I can pee before you go in there and then just do your thing. Um, or, you know, we, we need to communicate that like, hey, I don't like to be woken up at this time or that time or whatever. We have to express to them what it is we're expecting, what, what it is we need in a clear and healthy manner, not when we're upset. The worst thing we can do is try to communicate about things when we're already angry because then we've already lost our cool. So we're going to uh, use like uh, what I, I don't even know. I forget the word that I called it. It's like um, it, like extreme language. There's a better word that I used in my book, but um, it's like extreme language where you're like, you always do this and you never da, da, da. We don't want to use that. that. That shuts down any kind of actual communication. We need to use I statements or take it back to us. Like, hey, I've been having a hard time because we're stuck at home with the quarantine. And so I would really just appreciate like a 30 minute quiet time for myself. Like I would like to uh, read a book. I'd like to have my turn at the television. I'd like to, I don't know, whatever it is. So consider what it is that you need. What are these boundaries? What are the expectations? What are the things that you're wanting? Take the time when it's not uh, emotionally charged time so we can use our wise mind and we're going to communicate that. And you could practice what you want to say, write it out, role play um, before <clears throat> you say anything to them. It's okay to to practice so then you like feel more comfortable and confident when you say it. Um, and then we have to do what's called like upholding and follow up. So even though we've told people like, hey, I need that, let's say back to my example, like I need 30 minutes in the bathroom because that's our only private space. I'm going to shut the door. I'd like to read or journal for 30 minutes. If you could just leave me alone during that time, that would really, really help. You know, sometimes someone might all of a sudden have to go to the bathroom or forget that you're in there in that 30 minute window and knock on the door or open it up or whatever. And that's not the time to get angry. Instead, that's the time to say, hey, I'm, this was my 30-minute uh, personal time. You know, do you mind? 
And if they're like, hey, I'm so sorry, I just don't feel well, or oh, I've totally forgot. It's okay, it's okay. It's just, you know, I, I just really need this time. Thanks for understanding. So that we're not attacking, we're seeking to communicate and we're setting expectations with them. And we hope that they do the same. I think when we're coming out with our boundaries and talking about it with our roommates or our family, I think it's important for everyone to get a chance to talk about it. What's okay, what's not okay. And this is always, obviously, keeping in mind that like, or not even keeping in mind, assuming that the people in our family or in our living space are actually good people and not toxic, horrible, hateful things, people, so things, that's, that's how I feel about it, hateful things. But that's assuming that. So that's like best case scenario. Worst case is that you have someone that's toxic or narcissistic who gives no shits about your boundaries. And when it comes to that, all we can do is communicate and uphold and say, I'm not going to talk to you when you're like this, or this is my, uh, my alone time. I know it sucks, but do the best you can to not get angry. Don't give them what they want. Don't cave to their asks or desires. Just hold the line. And sometimes, I mean, the best thing you can do in those toxic situations is become a broken record. So you're like, I'm not going to talk to you when you're like this. I told you I'm not going to talk to you when you're like this. When you're more calm, we can have this discussion. And you just keep over and over. You say it. Or if you say, hey, this was uh, the 30 minutes of private time that I asked for. I'm not going to open the door. You know, I told you. And if they, but please, I want to talk. I told you this is my 30 minutes of private time. So, you know, I'm not going to open the door. This is, I already let you know about this. I warned you before I even came in here. You know that. And you just become a broken record. And then you can don't even have to keep talking to them about it. If they keep like just trying, thinking they're going to chip away at you, which some people do, you don't have to respond. Or if they try to gaslight and they're like, oh, you didn't actually say that. You never let me know. You're remembering it wrong or whatever. We can be like, no, I mean, you might think that, but that's not what happened. And we don't even have to engage. Don't have to talk about it. So I hope that that kind of gives you uh, some examples and ideas over different scenarios, because I know all of us are in different situations, whether we're back at home with a family that's just trying to hold it together, argues a little normal kind of healthy stuff. Then there's people who are in like toxic, abusive situations. And then there's those of us like with roommates and somewhere in the middle where it's like, oh, we just never spent this much time together. So we have to communicate about what that's going to look like. Um, Just remember that no one can read our minds expectations without communication are just resentments in the making. Okay. Let's have a little more water. We're making some good time here. Okay. Question number four, does comfort and solace have to come from within? If so, how the heck do you do it? I think one of the reasons I binge eat is to provide myself with comfort. Yes. Because I have no one to provide it to me. Um, dealing with PDD and childhood emotional neglect. I've been trying to uh, build my support network, but I'm wondering if the piece I'm missing is what I need to be providing myself. Um, So I think in PDD, is that, I want to make sure that I'm, I want to know what that means. I don't want to like, I don't want to misquote it. So I'm going to look it up here. Pervasive developmental disorders. Okay. So that's like, you know, if you grew up with a developmental disorder, I thought so, but I didn't want to miss so many acronyms, you guys in the mental health space. So does comfort and solace have to come from within? Yes. And that doesn't mean that it's like, it always comes from within, even if it's like an external thing. So let's say that I like to wrap up in a blanket and listen to calming music while I color. 
I'm doing a lot of external things, but the calming and the solace, the comfort, it comes from within. It's actually a, a state of being. I can't, uh, and I can't have someone else do it for me. I have to do it for myself. Does that make sense? So it's it's like comes from within and it, it comes from us. We have to do it for ourselves. Um, and so the second part of the question, that if so, how the heck do you do it? And binge eating is, you guys, it's so common that, any kind of eating disorder, but more by and large, the binge eaters, and whether it's bulimia or binge eating disorder, my patients who struggle with that tend to talk about it as a comfort, as a soothe. And so know that there is a, a direct correlation with that's very, very common. Um, but we're going to have to find another way to calm our system down that has nothing to do with food because we know if any of you've been in that binge restrict or or just binging cycle that that leads us to feeling worse about ourselves and there's that guilt and shame and embarrassment and then we won't need to soothe again and so we overeat again and it would just kind of go round and round and round and we'd never actually feel better. The the soothing only happens for like, a, let's say a maybe five minute window, most maybe 30 minute window before, you know, those negative voices start getting to us. So look for other ways to soothe. And I think the way that you do that is, well, there's a couple of things because I've been doing a ton of research on this because of uh, the coronavirus and people feeling panicked and stressed out and just overwhelmed. Um, True connection to another human is the antidote. That's actually the easiest way for our body to soothe itself. I know. It's crazy. And if you don't have someone, that's just like a first option. If you have a therapist, if you have a friend, ideally, it's more than a therapist because we're not available all the time. I would like you to have like at least one or two other people that you can reach out to to connect with. And connection doesn't have to be us venting or us getting support. It can just be that conversation. Like, I call my mom and I just talk to her about what I'm up to today and what's happening. Ask her about her day. Like very... Uh, casual, not even a deep conversation, but just that connection with someone that I love that I know loves me. And it's a very trusting, loving relationship. I can be soothed through that. And you can too. So if there are a couple people, that's like my first, uh, I guess, tool or tidbit or advice is to connect. And it's it's something to do with our vagus nerve and the way that our system calms itself down. Um, but it works like like a charm. So try that first. But if that's not possible, because I know for a lot of you, you're probably like, I don't have any people like that. And people in my life have been abusive and not helpful. Um, Then another way to provide provide comfort is environment. Um, This could be making your lighting a little bit softer at home. It could be getting comfortable, cozy pajamas or a weighted blanket. Those are all ways to self-soothe. It could be um, starting a new ritual at home. Like I know we're at home all the time right now, but back in regular life, let's say when we got home from work or school, we had a ritual where we, we started off the, te- up the teapot to make tea or, or something like coffee or whatever. We go in, we change our clothes, we wash our face, we put on our pajamas, then we get the tea and then we sit and we decompress for the day. Then we start dinner. I'm just making things up, whatever ritual or routine works for you. But there's something stressful in our brain. I mean, we all know this. It can be stressful to try to remember all the things you have to do in a day, right? Because we can feel very scattered. We don't feel very focused or very calm. So if we have a routine or ritual or a list that when we get home, that's our list. So we go through it, we look at it and we check things off. Did I do did this, 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 this? Perfect. So that way our brain doesn't have to focus on it, doesn't have to remember. We know we've got the list and that can be soothing and calming also. That's why routines and rituals, even associated with eating disorder behavior, self-injury, 
I'm talking too much, you guys. It's making me yawn. It's not you. It's me. I swear. Um, so all of those rituals and routines are part of what makes it so calming and self-soothing. So let's try to come up with healthy ones. Um, and then I think the, it's con- connecting with yourself to figure out what, if those are ideas, you're like, I don't like any of that. And that all sounds terrible. Then consider what has soothed you in the past. What, what feels good for you? Like for instance, one of my close friends loves to swim. That's actually how she like, it's part of her self care. Cause it's, it's soothing to her. It reminds her of when she was a teenager, she swam a lot. And even as a kid, it's just one of those things that like calms her down. So if she's feeling super stressed, she'll hop over to like the YMCA or her gym and go swimming. So think about what would be calming for you. What are some things that were soothing in the past? Is it music? Um, Think of your five senses. Is it uh, something that a smell like lavender tends to be a pretty calming? Um, Maybe it's like a certain candle that you light. There's all sorts. Maybe it's like, because then think of touch, right? Like comfortable pajamas or a blanket or a, a fluffy pillow those things could be good. Think of taste like a a chamomile tea because this person struggles also with like um, eating. I would encourage you to be very cautious about what the taste things are. I would encourage it to be just like a, a, a beverage like tea or something like that and not alcohol because alcohol ends up not really making our system calm down because it can cause when our system is trying to process alcohol and detox from it, it can make our heart race and that can mimic anxiety and cause a whole nother slew. And it's not actually calming. Um, it's like short-lived calm for long-term detox. Um, yeah, but think of all your five senses and try to come up with some things. And if then any of you are watching this on YouTube, you can leave in the comments, are there certain things that you do to calm yourself down? I used to love to color, like the feeling of the crayon on that paper just felt really good to me. So think about it, figure it out for you, do something that feels good and know that yes, it's going to take like five of those positive ones to negate that urge to binge eat. That's unfortunately just how our brain works, but it will get easier and easier as we put off that binge eating urge. Also, impulse logs, if you want to Google those, can be helpful if we struggle um, with urges to binge eat or any eating disorder behavior, really. But you can just Google impulse logs. You want to fill out like the day and time that that impulse occurred. What was the impulse? What are three feelings that we're feeling? What do we think led up to this urge? Um, What are some things that we can do instead? And then we need to do two things instead. Wait 30 minutes and then you can do whatever you want. Um, I know that's really, really quick, but I talk about this in a lot of videos, so I just don't want (laughs) to... belabor it with like, this is what an impulse log is, but you can look them up. Okay. Um, okay. And then I see what they're saying is like, I've been trying to build my support network, but I'm wondering if the piece I'm missing is what I need to provide in myself. Yeah, there are some things we can do ourselves. A lot of it is like meditation also works. And even some of that, like, calming self-talk like mantras work for me because sometimes if I'm feeling really overwhelmed I'd be like you're here and you're okay or you're home and you're safe or you know there are certain things that we can say that can calm us down but it's okay to look outside I actually think that the support network is the number one um, because that for some reason the way that we're wired is that connection is soothing and I would venture to say, based on conversations I had with my friend, Dr. Alexa Altman, who's a trauma specialist, she um, references how when we're children, the sucking and swallowing of being fed through a bottle or breastfeeding or whatever, um, our brain is wired to soothe. So sucky candies, like little, um, I don't even know, like lifesavers, for instance, um, that can mimic the the feeding that you would experience as a child that same sucking swallowing technique and it um 
it calms our system down. And so from birth, we're wired for connection. We're wired to to look into the eyes of someone that feeds us. And part of that is like so that we survive, so that they keep feeding us. But also part of it's just like uh, developing further, like developing our attachment and developing our connection to people and feeling part of something. All that's important to being a human and being um, a being on this world. And so I think that there are certain things we can give to ourselves to comfort and to soothe, but the support network is number one. So keep doing that. It'll get easier. But hopefully those other things were helpful too. Okay. Question number five, another great question. Please talk about dealing with hypersexuality as a result of childhood sexual abuse. Most stuff I found on the topic always assumes bipolar disorder, which is, it is a symptom of potential like mania and bipolar disorder, Um, but I'm not bipolar. um, And so I find it difficult to relate to their advice. So I think, uh, okay, a couple things to unpack here. First of all, hypersexuality as a result of childhood sexual abuse is very, very common. People just don't talk about it because the stigma, the shame, the embarrassment, all the things that come along with it, the mis- the lack of information and understanding, which is kind of, I mean, back to the root of why I started my channel is just so that people know it's okay. How you're feeling, what you're doing, it's normal. Even if you feel like it's unhealthy, there's something we can do and it doesn't make you crazy. It doesn't mean that you're unfixable or something's wrong with you. We all have things wrong with us. No one's perfect. We're all works in progress. We just have to understand and work to feel better, right? So yes, I want to address the fact that a lot of those with bipolar disorder, if you don't understand bipolar disorder, you can get on my YouTube channel, Katie Morton, or just search on YouTube, Katie Morton bipolar disorder. I have videos about it. Um, Those with bipolar, usually bipolar one, meaning that they actually have full-blown mania, uh, people with bipolar two who don't have full blown mania, they have hypomania and they have de- more depressive symptoms. It can happen there too, but most of, at least my experience in the hospitals and in my private practice, my patients with bipolar one, when they go into mania, tend to be super impulsive. Um, they can be hypersexualized. They can spend a lot of money. They just make, they have really, really poor decision making skills and they have a shit ton of energy to go along with it. So it can be really detrimental to their relationships um, and their own like confidence. I've had patients over the years that are super embarrassed about what they did when they were manic and then we have to manage that while we slide into depression. It's really hard and it's really terrible. And that's not what we're talking about here, but I just wanted to address that. So if you find yourself in that bucket, you understand why. And it's really, it's to do with the bipolar disorder itself and how it affects your brain, how it affects your decision-making and what mania is. Um, And like I said, I have videos that go into more depth about that. But to this person's question, hypersexuality as a result of childhood sexual abuse is very common for a few reasons. Number one, if we are, when we're children, kind of what I was just talking about, that sucking and swallowing, the attachment that we want and we crave and we actually need as humans doesn't make us needy or weird. We need it. It's just part of the way that we're wired, okay? So that we need that connection. And if when we're trying to form those connections, we're told that sex is a part of that. We don't understand enough to know that sex is something that should be consensual between adults and whatever. All we know is that this is how love is shown to us. This is how attachment is shown. And we can also be told some very manipulative and abusive messages like um, no one understands our love or if you tell anybody, I'll kill you and your family. I don't know. There's a lot of things over the years I've heard. Um, and so that can really affect how we, what we associate with connection, with attachment, uh, with belonging or with love. It can get very confusing. And so we can 
almost all of those things like attachment, love, all, you know, things I was just talking about, those can all lead back to sex for us because we don't know how else to express it. We don't know what else we're supposed to do to feel valid, seen, important. So that's one reason, okay? There's a lot of them, by the way. So don't think that if yours doesn't fit into one of these buckets that it's wrong. I'm just trying to give some examples. So that's one reason. Another reason we can be hypersexualized as a result of our childhood sexual abuse is like a, I take control now. I had a lot of patients over the years, especially my eating disorder patients who have comorbidity with like uh, the meaning that they have PTSD, but then they also have an eating disorder, um, maybe even some addiction. You know, they have a lot of different things going on. Um, they've talked about how as a child, even if they said no, or maybe as a teenager, let's say, um, you know, we were raped or sexually assaulted, even though they said no, it didn't matter. And they were taken advantage of. And so they can feel like now I'm in control and I decide. And so they become kind of, and not necessarily like a dominatrix or anything like that, but they become hypersexualized as a way to be like, no, I own this now. I've decided. I said I want this life. I've had a lot of um, patients in the past who had uh, years as sex workers. That's what they. That's the way they kind of coped. And I'm not saying all sex workers are uh, have suffered from childhood sexual abuse, but a lot of them have. And it's a it's an ownership thing. It's a it's my body. I do what I want, and. That can also swing. So that's one kind of extreme, right? And we can swing into the other extreme where I've had many patients who are like, I think I'm asexual. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist on its own. I'm just saying that it can be as a result of this as well, where they're like, I don't want anybody touching me. I don't find anybody sexually attractive. It's not a LGBT, you know, it's nothing to do with like, I'm not gay. I'm not bi. I I don't like people at all. I don't want anybody touching me. And that's kind of a, I'm taking back the ownership of my body. Um, And so it can kind of go both ways. And then another uh, potential reason is to better understand. And I know that that sounds weird, but when uh, some of my patients who've struggled with childhood sexual abuse still don't know how to process it. And so being hypersexualized is like, like I know, and I know some of you are like, what? But it's giving our body and brain another opportunity to process what happened. That's the same reason, like it, I, I'm not, these are equal, okay? I'm going to tell you two examples and these are equal. The one that I just mentioned that we can be hypersexualized as a way to try to process the pain and the trauma. In the same way that if we had an abusive parent, we get into another abusive relationship, like another romantic relationship or with a friend. And why Why is that cycle? Why are we back in this? Why are we in the same relationships? We're, our brain is trying to give us another opportunity to process all that shit we went through. And so those are just a few of the examples as to why um, we can be hypersexualized as a result of childhood sexual abuse. And the best way that we can cope with it is to see a therapist. Like if you have the ability, please see a trauma specialist um, or someone who deals a lot with um, childhood sexual abuse. Um, usually it is, there's an acronym and they just like make it CSA, childhood sexual abuse. They like shorten it down. So you can search for that in books. Um the Courage to Heal Workbook is a great um, place to start. That's a great way to manage all that can come up with this. Um, and it also even teaches you how to heal to have a healthy sex life as an adult, or even if, I mean, it have a loving relationship with someone and it's consensual sex. Like how do we process that? How do we talk about it with our partner? Um, so I think that's really, really great. And so I think my, my advice overall is to talk to someone and to process it and also to, as much as you can, let go of the shame, embarrassment, Uh, whatever it is that you're feeling as a result, the judgment, 
because this is just part of your process. This is how you're trying to cope with what happened. And there's no right or wrong way to do that when we don't have any guidance, right? We're just kind of feeling around in the dark trying to figure it out. You did the best you could with what you had, and this is how you coped with it. And and that's okay. And if you don't like that, because like I said, I have, I've had patients and viewers over the years tell me about being a sex worker and enjoying it and wanting to keep doing it. There's, I have no, there's no shame against that. Hey, whatever helps you feel good, whatever you is empowering to you, that's not for me to judge. But if this is something that's hindering your relationships, it's hindering your life, it's something you have shame and embarrassment about, then that's when we should try to figure it out. We should try to work on it. We should try to find some other healthier ways to cope and process, which a trauma specialist will, especially someone who does a lot of childhood sexual abuse work, will know and understand. Um, And if you struggle to find someone who is in that specialty, I think a great way to go about it is to, um, is to call, I don't know if you guys have, it depends, but like some of the domestic violence hotlines or abuse hotlines, um, if you call and ask them, I know that sounds crazy, but a lot of people have these lists of referrals. You can tell them like, hey, I, you know, I'm a survivor of this and I really am just looking for someone in my area you don't know, you might find like a free clinic. Like I used to work in um, North Hollywood at this clinic. Um, we didn't specialize in trauma or anything, but we did a lot of court mandated therapy. Um, most of it was for free. Some was like 20 bucks a session. I think the most I ever made was like $40 a session, you guys. So they'll work with you. You can figure it out. Um, but that might be a great way to find a resource. Okay because it does get better. Don't worry. And like I said, there's no shame or in this. It's just, we all find different ways to cope. I am moving slow today. I'm sorry. I'm talking a lot. It's just, it's just how it is. Some days are like that. Okay. Question number six, how do you deal with the fear and anxiety of growing up? I just turned 19 and I feel very overwhelmed. I'm not the best at living in the moment because I'm so desperately trying to hold on to the things that brought me happiness in the past. I know it sounds morbid, but I feel like I wasn't supposed to make it to this age. Like I'm never going to do something important enough to earn my spot. Like at this point, I'm just taking up space. When I read this question, first of all, all these questions got a lot of thumbs up, meaning you're not alone. If you're the one that asked this question, so many people had the same questions, same concerns, same worries. I think it's just a great way to remember that we're in this together, that we're all connected and that, you know, I know we feel isolated and alone, but we're not. And when I read this, though, the first thought was depression. That sounds a lot like depression to me. Now, I'm not diagnosing you. I'm not saying that's what you have, but I I do think that you could benefit from um from seeing someone, from seeing a therapist, maybe try like Talkspace, BetterHelp, even the crisis text line, that's 741741. Those are great ways to reach out um, and cheaper ways. The Talkspace and BetterHelp are cheaper online therapy options. Um, you can even just do like the email or texting or you can do the you know the one-on-one like Skype or FaceTime uh, video chats. Um, so that was my first thought because the that I wasn't supposed to make it to this age. I'm never going to do something important. If those all sound like self-deprecating bad, like I don't feel good about who I am. I don't, I don't feel uh, motivated, depression, depression, depression. Um, and then, so going back to the fear and anxiety of growing up, I think, I mean, therapy is the best thing. And I really think that a, there's something in there. There's some falsely held belief, and that's like a, such a therapist word, but it really means there's a belief from somewhere in your life, usually it's like childhood, where you were told that that you're not good enough or you're never going to be enough or 
all you do is get in the way. You're never smart enough, strong enough, you know, whatever, enough, enough, enough. You're never enough. And I'm not, I'm just guessing that there's some belief like that. Like I'm worthless. I'm never enough. I'm not sure. Something in that realm. And out of that belief has come this, I don't want to grow up because that's all going to come true, which isn't true, by the way. That's why it's a falsely held belief, meaning it's not true at all. It's like things that we were told either verbally said to us, things in our environment that we thought, quote unquote, proved it, repeated thoughts that we had that we took as beliefs, and that all just feeds into that falsely held belief from childhood that we're not good enough, not, you know, all of the things, whatever it is for you. Um, And so the real way to deal with this is to start unpacking it. And I know a lot of you are like, well, shit, that's so much work. And yes, unpack. I understand. Trust me, I've been in therapy forever. And it's a lot of fucking hard work. And as soon as I think it's over, and I take a break, like six months later, I'm like, shit, I'm doing something else I don't like. (laughs) And this isn't benefiting me or anybody else. Um, So yes, working on yourself and improving is, is hard. It's really, really hard, but totally worth it. We only like the most important relationship in our lives is the one we have with ourselves. And I think for the person who has this question and everybody really, we need to invest in that relationship. So get to know yourself. What is it? Being a therapist is fun because I love being a detective. I love the detective stuff, but I love asking questions and being curious about things. So there's no judgment, right? You turn 19, you feel very overwhelmed. That's okay. It's a very overwhelming time. It's a big transition. We're supposed to be like, quote unquote, adults, but I'm 36 and still don't feel like an adult. So what does that mean? And like, what am I doing with my life? What do I want to be? Am I going to school? What was my major? What if I suck at that? So many questions. Trust me. I've been there too. And we can even go through these phases when we're like in our 40s or 50s. Who am I? What's happening? What does it, you know, that's okay. There's no limit to, you know, like midlife crises. We can have crises anytime. So, um, and I don't mean that to scare anybody. I'm just saying, don't think that you don't have the right to be upset or stressed about the future or wondering what you're going to do when you're like younger, older, whatever. It's, it's life. And we're always adapting, changing, and thank God, um, so dealing with this, we have to be very curious. We have to think, what would growing up mean? Hmm. What do you assume with that? Does that mean that you have to live on your own? You have to pay your own bills? Is that what's causing the stress? I would assume it's more than that, but that might be part of it. Are there ways that we could alleviate that stress? Maybe we get a roommate. Maybe we work two jobs. Like when I was in graduate school, I was also a waitress because that paid better, if you can imagine, than being an intern, which paid nothing. Um so there's those things. Okay. Maybe growing up means that I have to be into a relationship. Maybe it has to do with getting intimate with someone. Maybe that's where this is coming from. I'm just being curious. Um, does growing up stress me out because I have to move out? Do I not want to move out? Does moving out from my parents' house, am I worried about my younger siblings? Maybe is there abuse in the home? Do I like the rituals of being at home? Am I not ready? What does that mean? What if I didn't leave home yet? What if I stayed home till 21, 22? What what would that mean? So I'm not going to go through all of it, but I'm just telling you, like, it's okay to be curious. It's okay to wonder about this. Dig into that. Journal. Think out loud. But talking to a therapist will really help you tease this out and unpack it. Like I was just talking on a live stream earlier today about how in therapy, a lot of times we come to the table with this big yarn ball of problem, right? And we're like, oh, that's how I am. I feel like I almost like verbal, like vomit all of this information to my therapist. And I'm like, oh, and it just feels so heavy, right? And it feels so messy and confusing. 
And most of what a therapist does is like sort it. We're like magic sorters where I'm like, okay, this part of the yarn ball actually belongs with parent stuff. Okay, put that over there. Okay, this is actually like work stress. Hmm. Okay, this is like confidence. And we can kind of tease it out so that it doesn't feel so messy, so overwhelming. And then we can say, okay, with all of the stuff that we was in that yarn ball or that verbal vomit, all of that stuff, we've got it all divvied up. What's bothering you the most? Is it your uh, romantic relationship? Is it your situation with your parents? Is it work? Is it a friendship? Is What is it? Is it financial? Like So we can kind of figure it out and then we can work in that vein first. Um, and so with this, I think that's kind of what we need to do. We have this big yarn ball of a mess of something that feels really overwhelming, but it's really not. We just have to like, we have to sort it. Okay, so growing up, what does that mean? Okay, that means financially you have to be responsible. That means that maybe I have to... Um, you know, figure out what I want to be. Maybe, you know, try to think about that. Uh, Parse it out for yourself because I think that that will help you feel less overwhelmed and have a better idea of what you want to work on. Um, And then also the, like, I want to address this finally is uh, so desperately trying to hold on to things that brought me happiness in the past. I'm curious. I, that would be like, if you said that to me in my office, I would be like, So do you not think that the future has any happiness for you? I'm curious about that. Do we have any evidence to support that the future doesn't have happiness for us? Hmm. What about holding on to the past happiness makes us happy now? Because it doesn't sound like it does. So just, I know that this is hard and this isn't like easy work. It's not like, oh, presto fixo. But unfortunately, therapy isn't like that. Because it doesn't happen like that. Like this fear and anxiety and overwhelm didn't happen overnight. It took us probably years of faulty thinking to get to where we are. Um, And so we'll have to figure that out. We have to tease that out. But I hope that that kind of helped us understand and helped all of us. Because I think a lot of times we feel, I know personally, I, by the time I get in to see my therapist, I've been feeling overwhelmed for a couple months. I'm going to, I'm being honest with you. Um, You know, I've been, it, it, because it's hard. And then like, I don't, I'm like, do I even have anything to talk about? Or am I just like over, you know, am I overthinking this, right? We all do that. Um, but it really does help to have someone like sort all of our ish. And then we get to figure out what we want to work on first and we'll get through it. Don't worry. It's like organizing a closet at the beginning. We're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. This is terrible. I don't want to do this. It's going to take forever. And then it's not so bad. Just slowly but surely work our way through. Okay. Final question, because I have talked a lot. And I apologize. Um, question number seven. Wow, I didn't get through as many. as, But I will move. So I pulled 12 for today. Don't worry. The last five will go on for next episode. And I'll pull some new ones when I ask you for them. Okay. Um, question number seven. I was diagnosed with CPTSD. And I'm having trouble remembering the details of what happened. How can I process it if I can't remember the details? Now, for those of you who don't know, CPTSD is complex PTSD, which is really... The difference between regular PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and CPTSD is PTSD happens, um, you know, when we fear for the life of ourselves or others and something happens to us and essentially that is too much for our brain to process in the time. It's like, oh my God, oh my God, this is too much. Trauma. Okay. PTSD-like symptoms, hypervigilance, all of that shit. Complex PTSD is when the the trauma is repeated and repeated and repeated. And 
and CPTSD. Wow, that's a mouthful, you guys. Um, in a lot of ways, looks like borderline personality disorder. But I have a video about how they're different because they are very different. Um, so check that out. I don't want to really get into that too much here. Um, so just so you, that's, I just wanted to let you know what that is. So CPTSD is when we have a uh, chronic, and it should be chronic PT, like that would make more sense, but it's complex, which also works, I suppose. Um, and just so you know, when we are traumatized, uh, memory uh, can be very hard to come by. And the reason for that is back to what I said, what causes PTSD is when it's too much for our brain to process. It's like, what do you expect from me? Right? So the, I, I talk about this a lot, but like, it's just my favorite analogy. So I apologize. If you have a better one that you'd like me to start using, please let me know in those comments. But the movie Inside Out, they show memory as marbles, okay? And the memories that we have that are like non-traumatic are like these little narratives. That's how our brain, that's the best way that we remember things is through stories. So when we're going through a regular day, no trauma, this little marble is, mar- marble, Wow, I've got marble mouth. Um, the the marble is created. It's all smooth. It's it's a smooth narrative, right? I'm like, so I got up, I saw Sean, didn't leave the house because remember the coronavirus. There's a whole story about that that goes into this. And then I'm like, and then I did this podcast and I watched some TV, some Brooklyn Nine Nine because it's hilarious. And then I went to bed and I filed that away. But when a trauma happens and our brains like it can't it can't process it, can't make sense of it, it can't put this narrative together. There's no story behind it. It's like in that process where it's the thing is like rolling and rolling and rolling to create the marble. It's like something hits it and the marble goes whoosh, and it smashes onto the ground in a gazillion pieces. We can't file that away. All those memories, the bits of memory is all we have left. And especially when we have flashbacks, it's like we're walking through that file cabinet and those splinters of that marble that was shattered are on the floor. And we're like, oh, and then it sends us right back to that memory. We're like, oh my God. And that, that thing happened that was horrible. And I was terrified. And oh my God, I remember that feeling. We can even have body memories as a result. We're like, I remember the feeling of them grabbing me on the arm, or I remember the car crash or whatever it is. And so that's why we have a tough time remembering details. And that's why trauma therapy is slow and difficult. And I'd like to say it's not but that's just the way that it is. And there are other treatments like EMDR, um, even schema therapy. Some therapies tend to move a little bit more quickly for people. Somatic experiencing is another great type of therapy in the trauma realm. But EMDR is probably the one that you've heard. Um, what does it stand for? Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, I believe. Um, is uh, and I have a whole video about that too. You can get on my, you can just search Katie Morton EMDR. But essentially, it gives your brain another chance to process the trauma, and it um, it's not as long term as like let's say talk therapy through through trauma. But the goal is to take all the little uh, bitty bitty details that you know, like maybe you don't know much, but you remember like a kind of a time. We'll just work with what we've got. And as we talk through what we do remember, oftentimes when I'm doing talk therapy with a patient, I'm not a trauma specialist, by the way. But as I'm talking through um, something that's difficult with a patient, I start back before it was bad. So it's easy to talk about things before they're bad. It's like, yeah, I remember, uh, like, let's say there was like this big traumatic uh, uh, car crash, just for lack of a better thing. Um, But like a month before, my family and I had gone on a trip to Hawaii. I don't know. I'm just making shit up, you guys. 
But so I, if I was um, talking to me, I would say, tell me about Hawaii. We'd start there. And then I'd get you through to when you came home and right before things happen. And we'd start to try to piece that together. And the thing that's interesting about our brain is like, as we start telling a story, we'll often be surprised by what we remember. Um, sometimes I have patients close their eyes if they feel safe. That's not always the case, but we can use our senses. Did you smell something that day? Did you taste something? Do you remember what clothes you were wearing? There might be some strange things that bubble up. Um, you don't have to rush yourself. Most people don't have great memories when it comes to traumas because our brain never got a chance to process it. But as we creep through that file cabinet looking for that information, we will find it slowly but surely. Because the memory loss is actually, I think, very protective. It's kind of like a dissociative state where our brain's like, ah, I can't handle this. I got to get out of here. Um, and so it like disconnects, pulls the ripcord. And we don't have any memory of it so so that we can keep going, right? Sometimes, I swear, it's like our brain knows, it knows how much we can handle. And it's like, this is too much. If I try to process this now, I'm not going to be able to go back home. I'm not going to be able to finish high school or whatever, whatever age we were. Um, so I just got to hide this for a while. I'm just going to, I'm going to throw that marble on the floor and we'll deal with it later. So it's, it's a protective thing so that we can keep going. Um, and so the best way is just to start talking about things that you do remember. Oftentimes when we're in therapy, we focus on things we don't remember, but it's okay just to focus on the things that you do and work from there. And there's no pressure. If there is no memory of something, then that's okay. We keep moving on. We talk about the symptoms and we work to treat those. We work to deal with the impulses. My belief and my experience tells me that the memories will come back. Not fully, not, they're sometimes complicated. Like we'll have like two memories roped together if it gets too hard to do the talk therapy, because usually that's how people start is they'll start talking to a therapist. But if it's too much, it's hard to stay present if you're dissociating too much or if the it just feels like it's too hard, it's taking too long. There are those other options like the EMDR, the schema therapy. Um, sometimes even attachment-based therapy can be beneficial. There's even whole treatment centers, at least in LA, for trauma um, and PTSD. Those are things you can look into as well. Um, but it does get better and it will, in my experience, it will come back. I don't think any memories come back 100%. I have trouble recalling things 100%. But the the nitty-gritty of the actual event that was traumatizing, in my experience, does come back. It's just really difficult and it can take time. So be compassionate, understanding, you know, show yourself the kindness and love that you need during this time. And hopefully, you know, if, if you don't feel connected to your therapist, find somebody you feel connected with because it's really, really important to, you know, process it with someone that you trust and that feels safe. That's the most important thing. And they go at a pace that's challenging, but doesn't cause you to dissociate. Okay. Well, that's all we got through today. I don't know. I guess I was just super chatty, you guys. And again, I'm sorry. But those were seven great questions and hopefully seven helpful answers. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Um, this is a fun new adventure that we're on and I've really been enjoying it. So enjoy the rest of your day and I'll see you next week. Bye. Ask her about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie.